Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. When Jesus met the man born blind, he didn't heal him. Rather, he gave the man sight that he'd never had before. And so really, it's not so much a miracle. After obediently going to wash in the pool of Siloam, as Jesus had commanded, the man went home seeing, and we're picking it up today in John 9, verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go and wash. He told me, He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. When the man had encountered Christ, he was blind, and immediately he left Jesus to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So no wonder he didn't know where Jesus was now. I understand the neighbor's reaction may have been just out of shock, but it's very interesting to me that these people do not recognize the man. They'd lived next to him all those years, and yet they never really saw him. And I think that's a challenge to us too. Do we ignore those people who have disabilities? or do we truly see them as people whom God loves? Having received his sight, the man was immediately taken to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Though Jesus had told them before, these leaders did not understand that Jesus is really Lord of the Sabbath. They were so focused on the Sabbath rest that they didn't understand that the Sabbath actually pointed to Christ. Jesus is the Sabbath. It is in him that we can finally enjoy God's presence and rest from our own works. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Notice this man didn't fully understand who Jesus was. First, in verse 11, he'd said that he'd been healed by a man. Now, he says in verse 17 that Jesus is a prophet. 
But the religious leaders were angry. You see, this man had been born blind. Now that he had sight, it was a miracle that had never occurred before. No one had ever healed someone born blind up until that point. Jesus had not merely restored the man's sight. He had given him sight he never had before. Their immediate thought was that Jesus had switched beggars somehow and that this was not the man who'd been born blind, but someone who just looked like him. And so the religious leaders called for his parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age, ask him. So instead of being overjoyed for their son, this man's parents are afraid, and so they try and separate themselves from him. Being put out of the synagogue, you see, meant that if they had younger children, those children would not be able to attend school. They might also lose their jobs, and neighbors and friends would have treated them as if they were Samaritans. So no wonder they didn't want to answer. No wonder they they were afraid. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. When they tell the healed man to give glory to God, what they're doing is actually putting him under an oath to tell the truth. But when he's told to give God the glory, it's interesting that the man gives all the glory to Christ. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This man did not know much about Jesus, but he did have his testimony. What he could talk about was how Jesus had touched his life personally. And you know, you and I may also feel as if we don't know much. Perhaps we still have some questions about Jesus. But like this man, the one thing that we do have is our testimony, and we can tell others what Jesus has done for us. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, do you notice there how he says, do you want to become his disciples too? Obviously, it means this man has already reached a decision about Christ himself. He did not fully understand who Jesus was, and yet he knew he wanted to follow him. Look at their reaction. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, in verse 34, the Pharisees uphold the idea that it was sin that had caused this man's initial blindness. This man, though, was cut off from his people because of his stand for Jesus. He was willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ. And it really makes me wonder if we are willing to stand for Jesus ourselves, no matter the personal cost. Or would we rather compromise with the world for the sake of a quiet life? Can you imagine this man walking away from the teachers of the law, knowing that he'd been cut off from his people for telling the truth? He must surely have felt alone and worried for his future, because even his parents would have been too afraid to speak to him now. But there is someone else who wants to speak to him. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus revealed himself to this man as the Son of Man, in other words, the Messiah. And in response, the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And that's certainly worth taking note of. You see, this man's physical eyes had been opened, but now his spiritual eyes were opened also. Not only did he yield to the Lordship, the ownership of Christ, but he immediately began to worship Jesus. And more than that, Jesus accepted his worship. And that's very important for us to understand because worship was reserved for God alone. The fact that Jesus accepted this man's worship proves that Christ is indeed God because no good teacher or prophet would have ever accepted another man's worship. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? The Pharisees followed Christ around all the time, checking up on what he was doing. So it's no surprise that there is this group of them there even now. And so Jesus uses this miracle to teach a lesson about those who are spiritually blind. You see, those who believe in him will receive spiritual sight that they never had before. But there will also be those like the Pharisees who will not look to him to be saved. Verse 41, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. 
The religious leaders' real problem was their pride. You see, if they had confessed their spiritual blindness to Christ, he would have shown them mercy. But they were so sure that they could see spiritually, and without understanding their need for his touch, their sin remained. Pride is a terrible enemy to the things of God. We need his touch to be able to see things God's way. In chapter 10, Jesus went on to speak to them using a picture of shepherding that they would have easily understood. However, many of us need a little background so that we can understand this better. In those days, it was usual for sheep to be kept in a sheep pen at night for safety. Imagine a large enclosure where rocks have been piled up to make walls for protection. Bushes could also have been used, but in Israel, rocks were far more readily available. The sheep enclosure had only one entry and exit point, and the shepherd would lie across the opening in order to protect his sheep from wild animals at night. In this way, the shepherd became the gate for the sheep. Thieves and robbers would sometimes try to get to the sheep by climbing over the walls, but such people, they didn't care about the sheep. They were only focused on meeting their own needs. Now, in those days, different flocks would often be kept together in the same sheepfold. In the morning, when the shepherd woke up and stood at the gate, he would call for his sheep. And because they'd spent time in his presence, his sheep would recognize his voice and they would come to him. Now, we know that in scripture, God often referred to Israel as being his flock. And he would say that he was their shepherd. Later, when we read John ten 16, we'll see that the sheepfold in this illustration, or the sheep pen, is really a picture of the nation of Israel. The thieves and the robbers were the religious leaders who were trying to take advantage of the sheep for their own gain. So with that in mind, let's begin in verse 1. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus came as the shepherd who has authority over the sheep. Only those who belong to him would respond to his voice when he called. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. There were many different sheep 
in the sheepfold of Israel. But only Christ's sheep, those who belong to him, would respond to his voice and they would be the ones to follow him. In Jesus' day, shepherds did not drive the sheep ahead of them. They instead led them by walking on ahead of them. And that picture of the shepherd leading the sheep really challenges me because I realize that far too often we want him to follow us. We pray asking him to be with us where we are and we ask him to bless the direction that we've decided to go in. But that should not be the case. We are to follow him. He is the one who has to lead us. The religious leaders should have understood the simple illustration, but they did not. And so Jesus goes on with a different illustration in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus begins by saying that what he is about to tell them is unquestionably true. And then he makes this third I am statement saying, I am the gate for the sheep. By mentioning the thieves and the robbers who came before him, Jesus is not speaking about other people or prophets of the Old Testament through whom God worked. Rather, he's speaking of the religious leaders who were trying to take advantage of the people for their own gain. The religious leaders were so focused on their own needs, they really were not able to lead the people to true freedom. But Christ was. He is the only gate, the only way by which they could be released. Those who listened to his voice would be led out of the old religious system, giving them freedom to walk on with God. But Christ is not only the gate for the sheep. As we will see in verse 11, he's also the good shepherd. He is the owner of the sheep and as such, he's not like the religious leaders who are more like hired hands. He says, I am the good shepherd and that really is the fourth of the great I am statements and it's there in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at the contrast. The religious leaders are likened to hired hands with no real interest in the sheep. They don't own the sheep, so they're not going to really protect them. They only think of protecting themselves. Christ is quite different. Because he is the good shepherd, the sheep belong to him and he's willing to lay down his life for them. Remembering that the sheepfold is also a symbol of Israel. 
Look at what Jesus goes on to say. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here, what Jesus is doing is he's actually speaking of the Gentiles, the other sheep that belong to him who are not part of the flock of Israel. They too will hear his voice and there will be one flock. In other words, the church made up of Jews and non-Jews alike, all belonging to the shepherd, to Christ himself. And even Hebrews 13 verse 20 declares Christ to be the great shepherd of the sheep. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus clearly tells us here that no one is able to kill him. When he dies on the cross, it will be because he willingly lays down his life for our redemption. He will lay his life down of his own accord. And then speaking of the resurrection, he says that having laid down his life, he will take it up again. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there was an ongoing division concerning who Jesus really was. Because John is emphasizing only certain events, though, in Christ's life, it is believed that two and a half months pass by between the end of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. So now in verse 22, it is the festival of dedication two and a half months later, known as the festival of lights or Hanukkah today. This celebration was a reminder of the rededication of the temple over 150 years before when the great leader Judas Maccabeus defeated the Greeks who had corrupted the temple. Verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Do you see in verse 24, the religious leaders ask Christ to tell them if he is the Messiah or not. And of course he told them that already. Jesus picks up on the picture of the sheep and their shepherd again, saying that if they still don't recognize his voice, it's proof that they do not belong to him. Jesus concludes in verse 30 by saying, 
I and the Father are one. And look at their immediate reaction. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's very clear that the religious leaders knew that Jesus claimed to be God himself. Their attempt to stone him was the proper punishment for blasphemy. Some people we meet today say that Jesus is just one of many good religious men who've represented God over the course of history. But that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to be God and the people of the day understood that. Let me read you a quote from the famous writer C.S. Lewis and what he said about Christ's claims in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The religious leaders knew that Jesus claimed to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, Some of this is easy to understand because Jesus is saying to them, even if you struggle to believe my words, you should believe that the Father is in me and I am in him because of what I can do. But it's the first part of the text that is a little bit more difficult for us to grasp. Jesus is not saying that we as humans get to be little gods at any time. He's quoting Psalm 82 that speaks of the judges and the leaders of the earth. 
Rulers and judges were seen to be divinely appointed, and they were considered to be representatives of the heavenly realm appointed by God. In those days, it was not unusual to describe them as the gods of the earth because of who they represented. But that being said, though they were God's deputies, they were not righteous like him, nor were they eternal. And if you go and read Psalm 82, you'll see that God himself is the judge over these leaders. And God also says that without him, they know nothing and they understand nothing. And not only that, they will die like the mere mortals that they really are. The point of Christ referring to the psalm is that if these unjust men consider themselves to be God's representatives here on earth and act one with the Father in the sense that they believed they knew God's purposes, then how much more so could that be said of Christ? He was the one who had been specially set apart by the Father. He was the one whom God himself sent into the world. The works that Jesus did were very evidently the works of God himself. But again, the religious Jews tried to seize Jesus. And that's where we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for all that you have shown us. Lord, I pray that the difficult parts of this passage would become plain to us and that we would know that we are the sheep of your pasture. You are our shepherd. Lord, I pray that anyone here who is struggling to recognize your voice would begin to hear you speak more clearly. It is only by spending time in the shepherd's presence that we hear and understand and recognize his voice. So I pray that as we spend time in your word, as we listen to what you have said, we will begin to hear you more and more clearly. Thank you for the promise that says that indeed we shall. We will follow you because we belong to you. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.